And that's why, uh, beyond these Sunday morning services, the overwhelming majority of us who call North Sub our home either attend our life courses, those are our adult education classes on Sunday mornings, or we participate in life groups, which are groups of 6 to 16, or our growth groups, which are groups of 2 to 5 that really go deep with each other. If you're interested, just kind of file those discipleship opportunities away in the back of your mind for consideration in your New Year's plans and resolutions here coming up, because we'd love to come alongside you in your journey by getting you plugged in with one of those in the new year. In just a moment, we're going to turn our attention to the fourth question in our Why Jesus series sermon series. In the past three weeks, we've asked a few questions. I think we have those up on the screen. Why did the Savior have to be human, we asked. Then we asked, why did the Savior have to be divine? Like, couldn't a perfect human have reconciled us to God? Then why did the Savior have to be lowly? Why do we find him living such a humble human existence? And today, in light of the fact that the gospel narratives, like the one we just heard sung, they take great pains to demonstrate that Jesus is the rightful messianic king from the line of David. Today we ask the question, why did the Savior have to be royal? Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. As many people purchased DNA tests in the year 2018 than in all previous years combined in human history. And experts predict the industry to continue to boom through at least the year 2027. Ancestry seems to be the thing to explore. Probably many families in this room have at least one relative who has taken a test and is maybe trying to piece together the family tree. It's not just an American thing either. Uh, business is booming, especially in places like East Asia. There seems to be some sort of universal itch to figure out where do I come from and what does that mean for me. On a personal note, I've felt this. I'm only a second generation American as I think about my grandparents who came over from Ireland as adults. I feel a pull toward Ireland to some degree, a desire to know what their life was and what my ancestors' lives were like. My dad, who's first generation, feels it more strongly than I do, so much so that he told me as recently as last week that if he ever retires, he wants to go live in Ireland for a while, uh, which of course made Sarah and I look at each other like, well, can, can you consider alternative retirement options on this continent? Like, what do we need to do for you to stay? Do we need more grandkids? What do you need here? Um, in all seriousness, in case my dad watches this, he, uh, he actually has a heart for doing mission work uh, in Ireland to reach his ancestral people, and we are at least 85% behind him on that, uh, if that's what God calls him to do one day. The point I'm making is that the pull to get in touch with the people that we come from can be strong. And while DNA test kits are relatively new, the underlying impulse is actually very old. In many parts of the ancient world, you knew your genealogy. It was your resume. It was your credentials. You'd retell your genealogy frequently to help make sense of who you were. And of, of course, you'd, you'd emphasize those parts of the family tree you were proud of while you might downplay or even leave out the parts of the family tree that you might have been ashamed of. Today, in our Why Jesus series, we get to look at a genealogy. I bet everyone here woke up this morning thinking, I hope 
today's the day that we get to hear a genealogy at church. But I think you'll find some aspects, at least, of this exploration really fascinating as we uh, take a close look at the genealogy of the Savior of the world in an attempt to answer the question, why did the Savior need to be royalty? So we're almost ready to jump right into that question. Before we do, we need to understand just one key thing about genealogies that might be counterintuitive for us as modern Westerners. Here's what it is. When ancient folks recorded genealogies, they would only rarely do so in a straightforward, precise way. Much more often, the main purpose of recording the genealogy was to tell a story that made a point. And as such, ancient historians felt no compulsion, really, to rigidly identify every single individual in the family line. If the story was better served by skipping an ancestor here or there, or on the flip side, if the story was better served by camping out on one individual and talking about him and his siblings for a long time, none of that was considered dishonest. Uh, It was actually totally acceptable to curate genealogies for narrative purposes. So... That just modifies, I think, the question that we ought to ask of a biblical genealogy like the one we're about to look at in Matthew 1. We can't stop at asking merely, who is in Jesus' family line? We also have to ask, what's the story that the author is telling when he writes the genealogy this way? Let's open up to Matthew 1, if we haven't already. And prepare ourselves to take a look. It's too long to have it all up on the screen, so you will want to have that open and and taking a peek uh, and follow along as we go. Now, as I'm emphasizing the importance of the story here, don't get me wrong. It's not that these aren't Jesus' real ancestors in this genealogy. They are. It's just that this list doesn't include all of Jesus' real ancestors. So there might have been other options available to Matthew with regards to how he could have told this story. Right? Other branches of the family tree, for example, that alternatively could have been legitimately explored within the bounds of what was considered normal in an ancient genealogy. Luke tells a genealogy of Jesus that's slightly different from this one, explores different branches of the family tree. So, so the question is, what story is Matthew telling with the people he chooses to include and with the way he talks about them in this genealogy? We heard the genealogy in a song just a few moments ago. Let's read through it now and point out just a few aspects of the story Matthew's trying to tell. Follow along with me, if you would, starting with verse 1, and see what you pick up along the way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, 
at the time of the deportation into Babylon. Last section. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiud the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer the father of Mathan. And Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. Of whom Jesus was born. Who is called Christ. So... All the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. First observation. Did you notice that just genealogy starts in verse 1 and ends in verses 16 and 17, identifying Jesus using the term Christ? Contrary to popular belief today, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah or anointed one. There were many anointed ones back in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Many messiahs, so to speak, anointed for different tasks ranging from prophetic to royal to priestly. But by the time Jesus comes around, the term Messiah or Christ mostly had come to be used to refer to one particular anointed one that everyone was waiting for. The anointed one of all anointed ones, in other words. The awaited king from the line of David who would one day come and restore Israel's fortunes. Matthew's choice to highlight and to re-highlight Jesus as Christ is one of a few reasons that we're asking of this genealogy. Why a royal savior? So I want to point out three emphases here that Matthew draws out about King Jesus. And we'll save few minutes of our time to wrap it up with a full body to answer the question, why a royal savior? First question, or first observation. King Jesus came to bring good news, not good advice. King Jesus came to bring good news, not good advice. I say that because in Greek, the first two words of Matthew 1.1 are actually book Genesis, the book of Genesis. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, which would have been a cue to Matthew's mostly Jewish readers that Matthew was setting out to recount a new genesis, a new beginning. But check this out. When there's a new beginning here, this new genesis, when it's proclaimed, Matthew doesn't say, here's a set of instructions regarding how you can begin again. It's not what he says. Instead, he starts with a genealogy, as if to say, here's an announcement of good news regarding the new beginning that someone else has obtained for you. If you're familiar with the, at all with world religions, you know that's fundamentally different from how other religious texts begin. Contrast Matthew's opening passage here with, for example, the opening passage of the Quran. Here it is. Rough translation. Uh, oh, we, we lost it there. Um, okay, I lost it there. The opening verses of the Quran, they lay out praise to Allah, and then they say, Allah, help us to stay on the right path. And that sets the tone for the whole book, which is instructions for how one should stay on the right path, according to Allah. Um, and it says, guide us to the straight path, the path of those on whom you have bestowed your grace, not the way of those who have earned your anger or those who have went astray. You see the difference there? There's all the difference in the world, actually, 
between we better walk the straight path, good thing Allah is willing to tell us how. And on the other side, Matthew's gospel, which says we've already left the straight path. Good thing Jesus came to rescue us. And by the way, I used Islam as an example, but we could have done the same with almost any major world religion. Religions tend to offer good instructions. Christianity proclaims good news. By starting with the genealogy, Matthew's letting us know, my intention in writing this gospel is not to provide you with good advice, my readers. It's to provide you with good news. But that's the thing. Matthew's gospel wouldn't be good news if what he's recording here didn't actually take place in time and space. Like some people think this. The story of Jesus is told in the Bible. It may or may not be true. But the important thing is that I believe it in my heart. And because I believe it in my heart, it makes me a better person. So, so what if it isn't all true, really? If it makes me a better person, what's the harm? Here's the problem with that. Even with the help of the most inspirational instruction manual in the whole world, we can't ever be good enough to walk the straight path. Not to a degree that would satisfy God. His standard is perfection. But because even the most self-disciplined of us wander from that straight path, no good advice will ever enable us to make our way back to him. We're like the hikers who are out of supplies and stranded in the Himalayas after an avalanche. What we need are not instructions to guide us in how to climb the mountain. We need a helicopter to pick us up. And while other religious texts go on addressing our plight by piling up more and more mountain climbing tips, Matthew and the other gospel writers say instead, hey, the helicopter is here. Jesus Christ was actually born from an actual human line, but yet was actually God in the flesh, who actually lived a perfect life and actually died the death that we deserve, so that when he actually rose from the dead, we could actually be raised from death ourselves with him and thereby actually reunited to the God that we had estranged ourselves from. It all actually happened. Or we're still all buried in a snowbank. Are you basking in the good news of what has been done for you this Advent? Or are you straining to try to follow good advice that you'll never be able to follow. Second, King Jesus, he's not just the Savior, he's the Savior of all. He's the Savior of all because there are some folks Matthew names as members of Jesus' family that you would not expect Matthew to include. First of all, the presence of women at all in this genealogy may have raised some eyebrows among any Gentiles who ended up reading Matthew's gospel. Actually, Old Testament genealogies often include women, which broke the norm in ancient Near Eastern, even Greco-Roman genealogies, where they normally weren't included. But, let's say Matthew did want to include women, which he does. You might expect to see Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, the heroines, right? The cream of the Jewish crop. Women who could demonstrate Jesus' revered stock. Instead, none of those mothers of Jesus are named. Instead, Three of the five mothers of Jesus who are named here aren't even ethnically Jewish. Tamar doesn't seem to be descended from Abraham. Rahab is a Canaanite woman. 
Ruth is a Moabitess. And according to Deuteronomy 23, those from Moab are supposed to be excluded from the assembly of God's people for 10 generations. But the scandal here isn't just the appearance of non-Jewish women in Jesus' genealogy. Actually, all five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy are, are either suspected of or guilty of violations of biblical sexual codes. Tamar, verse 3, she seduced her father-in-law. Rahab, verse 5, was a prostitute. Ruth, verse 5, whose family line came from incest, was forward enough with Boaz late at night before he agreed to marry her that it must have at least raised some eyebrows. Bathsheba, named here in verse 6, just as the wife of Uriah. That's just the thing. Uriah was a Hittite. She unlawfully married a Gentile. And then finally Mary, verse 16. Though she truthfully claimed virginity, her premarital pregnancy was certainly the talk of Nazareth. And there certainly was some skepticism about it. Bottom line, these women, not to mention the several wicked kings included here, aren't the sort of individuals that ancient people would normally go out of their way to foreground in the telling of their genealogies. So here's the question. If you're Matthew, trying to convince your readers that this certain individual is the savior of the world, and remember, you're under no obligation to include any women in the telling of your family line. And remember, the word father could also mean grandfather or great-grandfather, so you have freedom to skip as many generations as you want. Why would you ever start the story by going out of your way to mention such potentially embarrassing figures? There are at least three reasons I can think of. First and most basically, Matthew starts it like this because this is the truth of Jesus' heritage. One of the most compelling answers to someone who wrestles with the veracity of the gospel accounts is this, that all of this inclusion of weakness and embarrassment isn't how someone writes who is making up a hero story. Second, Matthew starts like this because he wants us to see God's grace triumphing over the law. God's hand bringing good even out of evil. But third, I think Matthew starts his gospel like this because he wants to remind us of the promise given in Genesis 12. Reaffirmed many times afterwards that all the families on the earth will be blessed through Abraham's family line. Remember that promise in Genesis 12? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. That implies descendants. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Matthew shows that Jesus comes, belongs to that nation that comes from Abraham. And that Jesus' family included many from many of the earth's families already. And that paves the way, of course, for the good news to follow in Matthew's gospel. That non-Jewish people today can be blessed by inclusion in Jesus' forever family by faith. In summary, Matthew is going to lay out in the pages of his gospel a king who came to save the least and the lost from every nation, every language, every gender, every reputation. And so he begins with a genealogy that reflects just those sorts of people. Do you know that he came to save you? Do you fear that you're not good enough? If in your past are buried some red flags, you're in good company. 
not only did Jesus come to save unlikely people like you and me, he delights actually to highlight people like you and me in the story of what he's done. Third and finally, uh, King Jesus is the rightful heir of God's promises to David. King Jesus, he's the rightful heir of God's promises to David. After we just saw the significance of Jesus being explicitly affirmed as the son of Abraham, notice a few ways in which David actually is the ancestor at the focal point of this genealogy. Look back at it with me. First, you notice that Matthew's three milestones are Abraham, David, exile. And David is placed right in the middle, the focal point of that. That centers him. Second, you've got all these 14s. You notice the 14s? Matthew seems intent on pointing that out to us as if it's significant. In fact, he leaves out some of Jesus' ancestors and generations to make sure he ends up with 14 in each section. Did you catch that in uh, verse 17, how he said it? So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what's up with 14? Well, your study Bible, if you have it, may tell you that in Matthew's world, names had numeric values. Uh, it's called gematria, since the letters also served as numerals in many languages. Each one corresponded with a number, each letter with a number. So guess what the numeric value of David's name is? 14, right. Yeah. And you say that might be a coincidence, and maybe it is. But then what do we do with the fact that David is also situated here as the 14th name on the list? It seems that Matthew has consciously structured this genealogy, more than anything else, to set forth Jesus as the new David. The true and better David, the foretold king from David's line. Do you remember God's promise to David? We've mentioned it before. Um, 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, God tells David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Generations of faithful Jewish people were looking for this one mediating king who would exercise God's rule on earth. They were waiting for this one, the fulfillment of this prophecy and so many others. And then about a thousand years after David, Matthew starts off his gospel by saying, in effect, the ultimate David, he has finally arrived. So Matthew's genealogy tells us at least three things about King Jesus. That he came to bring good news, not good advice. That he's the savior of all. And that he's the rightful heir of God's promises to King David. But if you'll just hang with me for just five more minutes. I want to finish by digging one layer deeper regarding why it matters that Jesus is this king from the line of David. And I want to do so by considering alternatives. One alternative is that God could have sent a non-royal savior, right? But then what about the promises to David? What about the perfect reign of God that was supposed to be mediated through the king from David's line? No, the savior had to be a king. But... God, theoretically, could have sent a crossless king. Maybe one who exercised his kingly authority 
more in the way that Caesar exercised his kingly authority. Remember that Caesar was ruling over the same area where Jesus was born and claimed as such to be Jesus' king while Jesus walked the earth. But Trevin Wax helpfully contrasts King Jesus with Caesar like this. Caesar ruled by conquering lands and subjugating people. Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave by suffering and dying. By bearing the full weight of God's wrath toward the evil of the world and then rising again to new life. Two kings, two completely different sorts of kingdoms. At the moment of Jesus' death, it looked like Caesar's power had decisively won. Caesar's sort of power. Yet here we are, right? 2,000 years later, with Caesar Augustus relegated to the history books. While Jesus still commands the allegiance of billions around the world. You ever think about that at Christmas time? Here's Trevin Wax one more time. Imagine Caesar in his palace and Jesus in the manger. Which one looks more like a king? And what would you do if you were in Bethlehem at the time and you had to choose to pledge your allegiance to either a baby boy who excited a few rugged shepherds or the ruler of the known world with an army of thousands at his command? But friend, our eternal destiny rides on our willingness to pledge allegiance to the lowly king whose defining reigning moment is from a cross. Imagine if God would have skipped the cross and sent a Caesar-like, crossless king to mediate his reign. Someone who would come bark at us, here's what God says, so do it. In that case, you and I would be doomed by such a royal king. Minus the cross, the reign of a perfectly holy God would spell our destruction. Instead, God sends a truly human and truly divine royal savior who reigns from a cross. Remember how the Roman guards mocked him? The day of his death, they couldn't imagine anything more ridiculous than a king reigning from a cross. So they put a robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head, mockingly praising him, Hail, King! But they spoke better than they knew. Because on that cross, we would see perhaps more clearly than anywhere the nature of Jesus' rule. He's not the sort of king who comes with an iron scepter to crush those who rebel against him. He is the king who takes the rebel's cross on his own back and marches it up to the top of the hill where he'll die for us rebels, taking the punishment we deserve. And as he takes our punishment, he defeats the death that previously ruled over us. Is Jesus your king? Correction, Jesus is your king. The better question is, have you bowed your knee to him? you're still trying to be your own king how's that going for you friend if, if if running your own life isn't working it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done you can become part of the royal family of jesus today on the last sunday of advent 2021 you can accept his free gift of salvation by stepping off the throne of your own life and bowing your knee to his rule 
And just a word to those of us who are here who, who do worship Jesus as king. We might do well to ask ourselves at the close of 2021, to what extent do our lives reflect the agenda and priorities of Jesus' kingdom? Like we have an entirely different sort of king than Caesar, whose royal agenda moves in a completely different direction than Caesar's. Are our priorities in line with the white-knuckle power-grabbing of Caesar and his modern-day heirs? Or with the humble self-sacrifice of King Jesus? Let's consider that as we pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you that you're not the sort of God who barks orders at us from afar. You're not the sort of God who is content to mail us down an instruction manual. You're not the sort of God who comes, at least in the first instance, with an iron scepter uh, demanding obedience and whipping us into line. Rather, we praise you that you are the sort of God who would step into our mess and who would take our punishment on yourself so that we could be reconciled to you. We thank you that you chose to exercise your power and authority in that way on our behalf at great expense and great cost to yourself. This Christmas week, may we reflect on that. May we treasure that truth. May we bask in it. May we let go of our white knuckling to experience the freedom that's found in your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.